a lot of people are saying, and I happen to believe this, that in many respects, business will lead government on climate change because clearly the dollars are moving in that direction. Welcome to Speaking of Business, conversations with Canadian innovators, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. I'm Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. We've been talking a lot on this podcast about climate change, and for very good reason. Finding a path to net zero emissions is perhaps the greatest challenge of our time. What will it take to ensure Canada's transition to low carbon energy is successful and sustainable? What role do we all need to play in that transition? Who better to ask than my colleague, John Dillon? John is a Senior Vice President at the Business Council, and he has spent more than three decades working on and advocating for sound energy, resource, and climate policy. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you, Goldie. Look, three decades is a long time to be spending on a policy issue, so let me ask you. How are you feeling about where we are on the question of really, really getting serious about addressing climate change? Well, I'm quite optimistic. I think we are seeing, and we have seen in just the last few years, real movement across the world. Uh, Countries obviously taking much more ambitious targets and talking about the kinds of policies that are really going to be needed to to get us to, to net zero. So I'm fairly optimistic on that score. Well, that's a nice way to start a podcast these days, given everything else going on. But look, there's an old saying, right? You don't know where you're going if you don't appreciate where you've been. I don't want you to go too far back, but like, why do you think it took so long to get to where we are now? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, the science was evolving slowly, not because there wasn't a great deal of work on it, but it was a little hard to communicate, I think, in the early days, get Canadians and everyone, frankly, to understand what this actually means when the scientists talk about two to six degrees of warming over the next century. What does that actually mean in terms of actual implications? But right now, certainly in Canada and other parts of the world, we're seeing the impacts of climate change. Obviously, what's happened uh, in BC in the last few months between record heat, wildfires, floods, other kinds of natural climate disasters, uh, insurance costs continue to rise. So there's clearly an impact of climate change and people are paying attention to that. The other thing that I think has been really changing over the last few years is the way that investment capital has taken notice of this, whether it's banks, pension funds, institutional investors, private equity, everyone's paying attention and looking and really examining their portfolios and saying, are my companies, are my investments really well-suited to what's happening in terms of the changing policy environment, in terms of the public expectations of what companies need to do to adapt to climate change, to reduce their emissions, to be successful in this net zero transition. So, you know, there's literally billions and billions of dollars every day looking at this question. And clearly companies of all sizes have had to respond to that. So I think that those are two of the most important things in terms of how things have changed over the last 30 years. Yeah. And, and as you say, sometimes these things take time and uh, the cumulative effect of both those things gets us to where we are at. So, look, you've been, uh, you know, as I said, doing this for a long time. One of the things that you were involved with that I just thought I'd, I'd have you kind of shed some light on, and particularly for our listeners to be aware, but the Business Council of Canada was the first business group in North America to advocate for a carbon tax. That occurred in 2007. Now, we know for some that's a controversial item, for others, less so. I'm wondering if you could just share, why did the council take that stand 
And how difficult of a sell was it 15 years ago? I think the main reason was that our business leaders recognized that climate change was real. Something had to be done about it. You know, even 15 years ago, there was a lot of pressure to, to start taking those actions to reduce emissions. And frankly, the concern was that it left to governments and, and their heavy-handed regulation, the way they've dealt with other environmental issues, that probably wouldn't lead to a very efficient solution. Whereas using the, the carbon price and using the market to make those decisions was ultimately going to be more efficient and less costly for business. And the reasoning is pretty simple. If the price is evident to people, the cost of using carbon-based energy and the emissions associated with it, if those are built into your everyday decisions, people will make better decisions. And they don't need a government to tell them whether they should choose technology A or technology B. They'll make that decision themselves and they'll find the best solutions for their business. And similarly for consumers, they need to see, and that's what we're starting to see happening now with our national price on carbon, they need to see that the kinds of things that produce GHG emissions are going to be more costly as time goes on. And certainly we advocated for a carbon price that increases gradually over time, that allows businesses and consumers the time they need to make the adjustments. Uh, so that it's not a big cost hit all at once, but you know that every year the price goes up. And so you need to start changing your behavior, making different investment decisions, different consumption decisions, so that you're reducing your emissions over time. Now, was it a tough sell? Yes, it was in a couple of ways. Number one, because businesses worry about their competitiveness. They always worry about that. And in 2007, there weren't many countries anywhere. The Europeans were starting to talk about a carbon tax, but most of our competitors in these emissions intensive and trade exposed industries were not talking about carbon price or any meaningful, frankly, climate policy. So there was a worry that a price on carbon could impact our competitiveness. But fortunately, we've been able to design that policy in Canada to deal with a lot of that concern. The other, of course, was the political saleability of this to a lot of consumers who never like to see the, the price or their, their energy go up. And that's why we advocated, and, and to their credit, a lot of governments have adopted the policy of, of offsetting the carbon tax with reductions in other taxes or rebates to consumers. So the things that you don't want, carbon emissions and and uh, excessive energy usage are disincentivized by the price. And by lowering the taxes on other things like income and capital, you encourage the things that you do want to happen. So that's been, I think, a big part of the reason why it's more acceptable today than it might have been when we first advocated for it. Well, look, there's a lot there that um, we can unpack over the course of the podcast because you've talked about the role of business, the role of government, the role of the consumer. Let's start, I guess, with the role of government in terms of the policy framework that's necessary. Are we where we need to be to be able to do what we need to do just to get to where the commitments are to 2030, which are quite aggressive, as you know? We're seeing a lot of the pieces start to come together, but I would characterize about three absolutely essential things we need. One is an investment environment that really encourages companies to make the investments in technology that will reduce emissions. And we're starting to see elements of that, obviously. But this is about, as I said earlier, bringing that capital to bear, whether it's private sector capital, whether it's from institutions and pension funds, whether banks and others that, that lend to these companies. There has to be an environment that really encourages that investment, not just in, in adapting technologies, but also money to, to research and develop some of these technologies. So that's number one. 
Number two, there's obviously some specific things that we need to talk about and critical to uh, achieving the 2030 target. Things like carbon capture and storage. We're seeing a lot of companies, not just in the energy sector, although that's a lot of the focus, be interested in developing technologies to capture the carbon and store it and potentially even use captured CO2 to make it into other useful products. Um, so the government has promised an investment tax credit. We're really looking forward to seeing that. So a big push on, on carbon capture is one part of that. Developing a clean electricity grid. Again, a lot of governments have talked about this, that there's been movement to some degree. Um, we've phased out, for the most part, coal power in Canada, but we still need to significantly expand our clean electricity grid in Canada. That's hydroelectricity, renewables, nuclear, all the things that produce electricity without emissions. As you know, Goldie, there's a lot of talk about uh, switching to electricity for vehicles, for certain kinds of industrial processes. Electricity needed for electric vehicles, for home heating and air conditioning, and also for certain industrial processes. So that's important to start really thinking about how we're going to build that electricity grid. We've seen lots of estimates that suggest we need to expand electricity by double or triple what it is today. And then another element, obviously, related to that is the move towards electric vehicles in Canada, replacement of gasoline-powered vehicles with electric vehicles. We've seen a lot of investments by our North American manufacturers in that, so that's a big component of it. And then lastly, a big push on innovation and research and development, um, because that's going to be the key. We're, we're not going to get there today with just the technology we already know about. We need to really invest and develop in those technologies of the future. So... It seems like you're encouraged from what I can tell that at least most of the framework for some of the policies are going to be there. You've talked about capital forming, both public and private. You've mentioned some of the innovation that's necessary. Where does the business community fit into this? What is it that's needed from them? And particularly, how do they work with government to get the country to meet the objectives and the targets that it has set for itself? So I think there's a couple of things that are critical. One, obviously, is to be really focused on on what their strategy is uh, for the low carbon economy of the future. And we're seeing demands for this um, from shareholders, from public institutions, from uh, you know the securities regulators, markets, the pension funds themselves, um, those who invest in company really want to see a long-term strategy and know that the board and management of the company is focused on what a successful strategy looks like to transition to this low carbon economy. So where is that all going to come from? Do, do, does the board and the, and the management of the company, have they really thought through what that strategy looks like and how they're going to succeed in that low carbon future? Um, so that's one element. That's, a, I think, a big part of it uh, in terms of how, how the private sector needs to approach this. The other thing is, is how do we access that pool of private capital that's out there? We know that you know, Mark Carney and, and others have talked about trillions of dollars of investment. Um, a recent report by RBC suggested that the net zero transition in Canada would involve $2 trillion between now and 2050. Which, for context, is basically the size of the Canadian economy. <laughs> yes, exactly. So so that's the size of what the transition that we're talking about. Um, and so it, it really requires business to think about what's my place, what's the role of my company in that transition. If I'm an energy producer, what is the 
what does my portfolio of energy assets look like going forward? You know, there are many reasons to think that demand for oil will continue, perhaps not at today's level, but it's certainly at some level going well into the future. But there's also huge opportunities for cleaner forms of energy, for things like hydrogen, for nuclear, sustainable jet fuel. Uh, you know, how do we change the transportation system so that we all get around in the way that we like to with the same convenience and cost that we're used to? but with much lower greenhouse gas emissions. So there's huge opportunity that the businesses of all kind have to think about whether they're in the industries that are producing those emissions or whether they're in the industries that are providing solutions or in the financial institutions that will help develop the capital to fund those kinds of technology investments and transition. So, uh, you know, I mean, it it all sounds like a a really heavy lift as as you're talking about. And you mentioned that there's this other affected party and that's the consumer. Yes. And you've mentioned that you know the consumer certainly is there that climate change is real, it's happening, they're feeling the effects of it. It's not something that you think about being in the future. How would you characterize the the mindset of the of the consumer at least in Canada at this time in terms of how they perceive or what they perceive their own role to be in this transition? Well, I think at heart most Canadians would recognize that even if they don't think about it every day if if they were stopped and asked about climate change, most of them would recognize, yes, you know, I I drive a gasoline-powered vehicle. I take flights. I go on holidays. I, uh, you know, I power my home uh, through with natural gas or other forms of of, uh, of power that produce at some at some level produce emissions. So, and I, you know, make purchase decisions uh, and so on. So that everyone has to recognize that they have a role to play in this. Part of the challenge has always been how much are Canadians actually willing to pay? And, and, it, and it's an important conversation that I don't think our, our governments have really addressed as sufficiently as they should, because it is going to be costly. You know, we mentioned already that $2 trillion cost estimate for Canada's transition. We all want to have cleaner forms of energy, but those are going to be expensive. I mentioned earlier about doubling or tripling our electricity capacity in Canada. Well, all of that electricity has to be generated. We have to have the transmission lines to connect people to it. People want to buy electric vehicles, but they may have to retrofit their homes to enable to accommodate charging within their homes. You know, you can buy a heat pump today, but which is much more efficient in terms of providing heat for your home, but it's also much more expensive than traditional natural gas or other fuels. So I think there's a responsibility, obviously, on the average consumer to think about this, but on governments and business to provide more information and more education about what this transition is likely to mean for them. Because we all know that Canadians are used to having low-cost, affordable energy. Uh, that's in some in some circles considered a birthright as a Canadian. That may not be the case forever, and we need to really think about how we're going to adjust to the to the rising costs of energy and the implications that that has for the way we we carry on our lives. So, whose job is that? Who's gonna Who's gonna come clean with the public? <laughs> well, I think it's first and foremost the role of of government. We elect governments, and they and they. They promise us great things on climate change and many other fronts. And so uh, there is a responsibility there. But I think there's a lot that business can do as well, whether it's the businesses that provide energy and energy services or or the people that are producing other goods and services for Canadians. And, And be able to think about what their product or their service contributes to Canada's greenhouse gas emissions and what 
those individual companies can do to educate their own consumers. One of the things that we're seeing that I think that's really important too on the business side is we're seeing a lot more of our companies work with their supply chains and um, and figure out where the emissions are coming from within their own supply chain and try to reduce those emissions because I think that's a critical part of it as well. All right. Well, a lot to for people to absorb on that and something that I think we're going to be discussing for quite some time because it is going to be a, a long journey. There's also opportunity here, right? I'm, I'm going to come back to the innovation thing, but but part of what I hear as well as, you know, you're in the second largest landmass in the world. It's a very urbanized, you know, country, but there's a lot of small communities and there's a lot of um, impact that climate change is, is going to have on them and some of the roles that they'll be able to play, including the indigenous communities uh, across the country as well. What do you see their role in this and how, how can they participate? Well, of course, a lot of our smaller communities have traditionally been reliant on resource industries. And I don't think that's going to change remarkably over time. Um, we're seeing, you know, our forest products and our agriculture sector really focused on technologies and means that they can um, bring forward to reduce emissions. So we're seeing, you know, our ag companies invest in regenerative agriculture, improving carbon retention in soils, which is both good for climate change, but also good for the quality of the soils and agricultural yields and so on. Um, but I think when it comes to some of those communities, the opportunity to exploit more uh, clean energy, whether that's small hydro, wind, solar, even geothermal in some places. And what's really encouraging, I think, is we're seeing a lot of indigenous communities who want to become part of that as well. Because as I'm sure you know, a lot of communities in the north are reliant primarily on diesel power. And that's both um, not the cleanest form of energy, but also very expensive for a lot of these communities. Um, and so a lot of Indigenous communities, they want both the economic opportunity related to development, but also they want a cleaner energy source for their own communities. So they're looking at things like, uh, like renewable energy and small-scale hydro um, and invest, wanting to invest with power companies in some of those projects. And then the other part of it, of course, is that we have vast amounts of minerals in this country, and many of them are critical to the electric power future. Things like lithium and cobalt and nickel and copper, which are all critical components, not just to electrical vehicle batteries, although that's a big part of it, but even to our electronics, our cell phones, our televisions, our computers. Um, so there's opportunities. Canada is blessed with vast uh, sources of some of these minerals. There's great opportunities for us to be a key player in that clean energy economy of the future. And for those communities that are nearby, including some of those indigenous communities, to share in those economic benefits. Now, you know, you speak of opportunity and we've talked sort of internally inside Canada, but is there not also a global leadership opportunity here? you know, to really address the amount of emissions that are going to need to be taken out in, by 2030 and 2050. Canada is only going to account for a very, very, very small percentage of that, even if we hit all our targets sure. and exceed them. So what can Canada do to provide leadership to the world on the question of the climate transition? Well, I think one of the critical things that we can do is to demonstrate that it is possible to be a responsible producer of energy and minerals and even manufactured products that were really focused on building the cleanest uh, electricity system that we can that will in turn feed all those um, industries and reduce the overall environmental impact of some of those industries. I mentioned earlier some of the critical minerals that are going to be 
uh, necessary for the clean electricity future that we all strive for. And so there's really a great opportunity for us to demonstrate that um, it is possible to be a responsible producer of these critical elements that we're reducing emissions at the same time and that we're providing economic opportunities for our citizens. Um, the other thing is we've got some particular strengths in some areas that the world, uh, many other countries are looking at. I mentioned earlier carbon capture and storage, hydrogen. We have both vast quantities of natural gas and of hydroelectricity, both of which are critical to producing hydrogen. And of course, hydrogen is a clean burning fuel that doesn't produce CO2 when it's burned. We have uh, stores of, uh, of uranium and uh, technologies like uh, small modular reactors, which will be critical in many countries to producing cleaner electricity. Um, we have other opportunities, and I mentioned earlier agriculture. I think in many ways Canada can be the breadbasket to the world, but we can also provide examples of agricultural technologies that both um, produce better yields, but also store more carbon in the soils and uh, improve the quality of the soil. Um, so those are some of the opportunities we have, but there's many more. Uh, um, we, we have some really interesting small clean tech companies in Canada. They're small today, although we're all hoping that they are successful and grow into much bigger opportunities. Um, there's a company called Carbon Engineering on the West Coast that's actually figuring out ways to commercially capture carbon directly from the air. You know, we've had a couple of centuries of putting CO2 into the air. Wouldn't it be great if we could trap some of that CO2 that's already up there and turn it into useful products? And that's what they're focused on. So that's just one example of, of one of the uh, high-tech companies that we have that's a, a real opportunity for Canada. You know, we've talked a lot about carbon capture and, and so hydrogen and, you know, the electrical grids and so forth. You mentioned small modular nuclear reactors. Just more broadly speaking, you know, for the benefit of the audience, what's the role of nuclear in helping bring down our emissions? Well, it's critical for a couple of reasons. Number one is as much as things like wind and solar are a critical part of it, and, and many countries, including Canada, are investing in that, they're not always available because they are intermittent, whereas something like nuclear uh, really provides baseload power that's always available. It doesn't have any greenhouse gas emissions associated with it. And and frankly, some countries like um, France derive the, the majority of their power uh, from nuclear power. So, And, and we're seeing um, other countries invest in it as well. The great advantage of the small modular reactors, of course, is that they are, as their name implies, they are smaller. So they're less costly to build. There's less waste involved. They can build smaller units in more locations so they serve local markets. There's even talk, as you know, Goldie, about potentially using them in the oil sands or other places to provide the energy. Uh, and, and that too would reduce greenhouse gas emissions from that. And that's a very important sector where we need to decarbonize. So there's, and there's many other opportunities across the world as well. All right, let's um, see if I can't capture what you've said to some extent. It seems to me that there's really two ways of bringing down emissions, right? One's going to be human behavior, and the other is right. going to be innovation. Just ballpark for me here. How much is human behavior going to account for versus how reliant we're going to be on innovation? I'm not sure I would try to put a percentage on it. I, I would think the innovation part of it is going to be bigger simply because I think in most parts of the world, and Canada is no real exception, consumers for the most part still want the same 
the same quality of service, the same convenience, uh, the same cost that they currently get from their energy using devices, whether that's their automobile or their home heating or their electronic devices. So I, I think we need to, as I said earlier, we need to engage consumers and get them thinking about ways that they can reduce their emissions. But at the end of the day, you know, the electric vehicles in some ways are the perfect example. We really need to figure out a way that we can provide the same level of, of service and convenience to people without asking them to pay a lot more for it. And I know that's what the auto companies are really focused on, how to reduce the cost of electric vehicles, the batteries, how to reduce the charging time so that you can refuel quickly, how to ensure that you can drive the vehicle as long as you would like to before having to recharge it and that charging stations are always available to you. And that's just one example. We really need the innovation and technology that provides that kind of energy service that people have come to expect without a significantly higher cost. And I think that's where the innovation question really lies. What is it that you think are, and I think you touched on this some at the beginning, but if you had to say there are you know, a couple of really big challenges for the country when it comes to climate change, what do you think it is? Um, one of the big ones is the one that I mentioned earlier, which is how do we ensure that we have an electricity grid that doesn't produce greenhouse gas emissions? As you know, we have one of the cleanest electricity systems in the world already, um, largely because of our nuclear and, and hydroelectricity. There are entire provinces that produce most of their electricity from hydro. Um, and that's a great thing for us. We're way ahead of many other countries in that respect. But at the end of the day, we need to do even more. And uh, with the advent of electric vehicles and the idea that more and more devices will be powered by electricity, we really need to critically expand our, our electricity grid in Canada. There's opportunities for us to sell some of that if we have excess capacity to sell some of that to the United States who are desperate to replace some of their coal-fired electricity. So there's huge opportunities for us on that front. But we really need to figure out um, how we're going to break down some of the usual barriers because, as you know, most of our electricity system is is provincially oriented and provincially owned. And we really need to get better at exchanging electricity between provinces and with the United States, as I said, and figuring out how we're going to develop that system in a timely and efficient manner so that Canadians, as I said earlier, can continue to rely on affordable and reliable power throughout this transition. We started on an optimistic note, so I'd like to conclude on an optimistic <laughs> note. Sure. Uh, see if I can ask you, you know, here on, in February of 2022, as we look forward to sort of our 2030 targets and obviously 2050, what are you most optimistic about? This won't surprise you, Goldie, and it may sound a little self-serving, but I'm most optimistic about what our companies here in Canada are, are investing in, how they're approaching this, how they're really thinking through what their long-term strategy is, and how they're making the investments. I mean, we're waiting to see uh, what the federal government is going to do in terms of incentives to create um, carbon capture and storage opportunities. But we're already seeing a lot of companies in Canada step up with and talk about billion dollar, several billion dollars in investments per company in carbon capture and storage, and not just in capturing it, but also in building the pipeline and other infrastructure to deliver it to storage sites or to turn it into useful products. Um, and that's just one example. You know, we're seeing companies like Rio Tinto step up and 
and to develop a pilot project for a totally emissions-free aluminum smelter. Um, we're seeing other steel and cement companies really think through what their long-term strategy is to reducing emissions. So we've got the Pathways Initiative in the oil sands where the, the six big Canadian companies that um, are involved in the oil sands are all committed to net zero emissions by 2050. And that's just scratching the surface in terms of the number of investments that are on the books or being planned and, and the thinking about the investments and the technologies of the future. So a lot of people are saying, and I happen to believe this, that in many respects, business will lead government on climate change because clearly the dollars are moving in that direction and the investments are being made. What a great place to end because, as I said, I think people are looking for hope and looking for optimism at a time like this, and you've given them a lot. So thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing. Okay. My pleasure, Goldie. John Dillon is Senior Vice President at the Business Council of Canada. If you would like to hear more of our Speaking of Business conversations with innovators, leaders, and entrepreneurs, why not subscribe to our podcast? Search for Speaking of Business wherever you get your podcasts, or simply go to our website at thebusinesscouncil.ca. Yes, that's thebusinesscouncil.ca. Until next time, I'm Goldie Hyder. Thanks for joining us.